Welcome to World Oil's Oil Field Electrification Technology Podcast, sponsored by Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's oil field for tomorrow's energy. All right, Shane, good to see you again. Yeah, likewise, Jim, and glad to be here. I know, it seems like it's been a long time since we recorded last time, but for the folks out there in podcast land, no time has passed whatsoever, so that's good for them. We're here with episode three today, right? Correct, yep. And what's our topic today? I think we're talking about electrical integration and systems integration. Oh, yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, this is really the heart of the whole thing, right? We're with the ninja when it comes <laughs> to electrical integration and systems integration. I can assure you that. That's John Fisher? That's your official title is Ninja? That's the new title that I go by. <laughs> Cards are being printed Cur- right courtesy now. Courtesy of Shane, of course. <laughs> Yeah, so we're here with John Fisher. He's the managing partner and president of NSA Houston Quad Plus. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, yeah, start because everybody who listens to this knows that I don't really know that much about it. So start by telling (laughs) us a little bit about Quad Plus and what exactly you guys do. John, you know, we've been out there trying to grow this electric frack business for about six, seven years. And we use the reference of Tommy Boy quite a bit. For those that are just now tuning in, I can promise you that there's only one Chris Farley in this group, and it's definitely not John. <laughs> so with that being said, John, would you mind telling us about yourself and you know how you got involved in systems integration, sure. electrical integration? Sure. I was in college. I graduated college with a business degree and had a f- few different employment opportunities. And you know I was given an opportunity to work in the Houston Marketplace, an electrical systems integration company. Started out on the floor, working building panels, predominantly DC drive systems and power generation panels, and eventually just kind of worked my way through that organization up to be the GM. Then transitioned after about 12 years, I was asked to consider going overseas to start up a new operation. My wife was pregnant, just bought a house. My wife wasn't too keen on that idea. <laughs> so I left and joined the owners of Quad Plus with a specific focus to start a service organization in the Houston marketplace, predominantly pursuing abandoned and obsolete equipment to go find solutions that would upgrade it to the most modern technology mm. to right. extend the life of their assets, right? And so that's how we got started as National Service Alliance. And we were very fortunate, hit some good luck strings there where you know, we had some very good customer relationships that gave us opportunities and we were able to fulfill those requirements and supporting requests, supporting old obsolete technology. I was very fortunate to have a good backing of technical experts from electrical engineering and drive application and automation and control experts that could support the needs of the customers that I was calling on. And then, you know, we've quickly found ourselves being requested to, you know, add third mud pumps, extra generator control, or retrofit, you know, a plastic extrusion line and update, you know, from an old PLC5 to a Control Logics platform or upgrade an old S5 system to an S7 and so on. And so we just continued to grow over time. Eventually, we ran into an opportunity to build a land rig. And it was a very interesting time. Because it was working with a customer that says, we want an AC land rig. Here's the horsepower range we want. Here's what our draw works is going to be, our mud pumps. And so, you know, we need a price on a VFD house and drilling control system. So we started asking all these questions. And the drilling superintendent says, 
well, I don't know any of those answers, so why don't you tell me how you would do it? <laughs> so we just said, well, we would do this. We would do a split bus. We would you know, take all these things into account and uh, gives you this flexibility and redundancy. And they said, okay, yeah, let's do it that way. And so that's how we, we really kind of started growing the business. And what we found is, is being flexible and working with customers, giving them the opportunity to provide input. And so they got to be a part of the architecture of their own solution. And so that's helped us quite a bit. And so, you know, we've taken the approach, we work with our customers, we don't try to force a particular directive or solution and say, this is the way it is, this is what you're going to get. We try to be as accommodating and flexible, and it's paid off for us from the standpoint of working with a broad array of customers from OEMs to end users. And, you know, we just try to find where it makes sense and things that don't make sense. We don't participate in those activities. It's interesting because then that means that you kind of grew into this organically. It wasn't like, hey, you know, let's just get into oil field electrification and do that. I mean, there was that base there and you've been there all the way through from top drives going from DC to AC all the way through to the EFRAC today. So that is interesting. Yeah. Yes. So how long ago did you actually start, you know, kind of working in the electric frac realm? Because, I mean, now it's kind of a buzzword for everybody, but... sure. How long ago was that? Yeah, we originally got involved in the electrification side of mobile equipment for fracking and really in 2008. Wow. And, you know, started really on the engineering side. There was a concept that we were approached with and they said, you know, here's what we'd like to try to achieve. And of course, everybody is very close to the vest with information. So we were very much novices about the whole fracking process. And so what we knew and understood was power drives and controls. And so we just kept asking for load parameters and information. You know, they gave us a footprint and said, you know, we need one and a half megawatts worth of power distribution and drives in this footprint. And we created a solution. We did a couple of prototypes and like good, all the companies do in the oil and gas industry, we're pedal to the metal, rush to the market. <laughs> before we really get, you know, substantial runtime and everything is adjust on the fly as you go, right? So that's certainly something that's very different in this market as opposed to other industrial segments. Yeah, what's crazy about that, as John was telling that story, you know, I recall, I've tried to forget, but I think most of us will recollect 2009 wasn't necessarily a very good year for the oil field. The year before that was pretty good because all these AC drilling rigs were being built to keep up with demand and he was already down the road <laughs> downstream working in midstream on electric frack that's just crazy that y'all were already that long ago but you know not really focused on the ac the rig side of it at that point you're already going down midstream and migrating yeah, we midstream were, we were certainly doing some ac land rigs and then of course in the offshore environment we right. were working with customers offshore because still at that time the offshore market was still really good you know, it slowed down quite a bit, but, you know, we were heavy focused on service. So that was always a good source of revenue for us and always has been. And then the opportunity came along and presented itself for working on this product development for backside equipment. And, you know, then just over time doing a couple of prototypes and working through solutions and proving out the concept. And then the customer's like, okay, let's go and let's get on a build program for the next Several years, we, we built quite a few systems, 
got all that deployed and commissioned and they went to work and you know the feedback we got that particular segment of their business was the provided the highest ROI and was most profitable for that business segment. Hey, everybody, let me jump in here for a second just to thank our generous sponsors, Joliet Electric Motors. Without their support, this podcast wouldn't even be possible. So for all of your oil-filled electric motor needs, whether that's new motors, refurbs, field work, whatever you need, be sure and give Joliet a call. Remember, that's Joliet Electric Motors. Powering today's energy and transition for tomorrow's energy needs. Let's get back to the show. So you say standard. So is that not normal? I mean, that you called it out that you use standard components. Is it like, you know, in the tech universe, like Apple, where people like to use their own little special widget for things? There are some companies out there that like to kind of create their own standard drive, if you will, that's really a black box associated with what they do and only they control and manage and so it's not readily available so we try to stick with major manufacturers that are very prominent around the world that can support from a standpoint of product support distribution service in the event that we're not able to support something we've deployed into the field we have the opportunity they can call major manufacturer to come out and troubleshoot the system that maybe we built and delivered for them, and they can get support and service from somebody else if they need be. That seems like a huge advantage, right? Because if you're stuck and you need the special component that's only made by one person, then you got a problem, right? Right. It avoids being held hostage, if you will. Yeah. So tell us, I mean, Shane knows a little bit about this, but I don't. So you can fill me in on why is this whole systems integration thing and why is this so important? Why is this really the heartbeat of oil field electrification? Well, it's a big part because what you find in the what's going on in the industry today, everything is being segmented up from power source, power generation, the distribution side. Then you have the application aspects of it. And there's different approaches to handling the application. At the end of the day, whether it be in drilling, fracking, other process controls, the end result is the same, but how you might approach the solution can be quite different, right? So whether it's different from a standpoint of certain technology that you use, the topology of a solution you might use, products you might deploy, whether you go high voltage, medium voltage, low voltage, how you end up getting there can vary greatly, right? So at the end of the day, as an example, mm-hmm. Shane and I use this correlation a lot when we talk to customers is... I use drilling as an example. You're always turning the bit to the right, right? Right. How you achieve that can be done a variety of different ways. That can be done with AC drives. You can do it with DC drives. You can do it with mechanically driven solutions. You can do it with hydraulics. So there's a variety of ways to do it. But yet today, customers are looking for highly efficient, highly reliable, economical solutions to achieve their objectives. And it's not like an off-the-shelf thing or something like that, right? I mean, you got to talk with them, figure out what they're trying to do, and then make recommendations based on what. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times what we find with working with a variety of different customers, they have their own idea and visualization of what their solution might look like based on their own experience or their own operational profile. They want things to be a certain horsepower range. They want to achieve a certain torque speed performance. They maybe have a preference over a certain manufacturer based on historical, you know, operation or exposure. And so we try to work as a systems integrator. If a customer, as an example, says, hey, we prefer manufacturer A over manufacturer S. Well, 
that allows us that flexibility because we work with multiple manufacturers to integrate their standard products to create that solution. Yeah, it allows the customer to actually put their footprint on their concept or the configuration they're trying to develop. With that being said, it was a lot of fun going out there with John for, what, six, seven, eight years now. And the fun part was going to the customers and actually just giving them the option to say, hey, man, in a perfect world, perfect universe, what's your concept? What's your ideal configuration look like? And with John's expertise and our ability to build these motors to meet those speed and torque and and horsepower requirements, we were able to take kind of a holistic approach and kind of expand the electric frack market particularly to open up some more opportunities for some other players out there that were intrigued by the idea of going electric. Yeah. Well, an interesting thing to me is just that, you know, they might know their basic requirements right. right, that they need, but most operators and people who are involved in this, I mean, it's still new enough that they have no idea, really. I mean, the nuts and bolts and what it takes to get there, right? That is correct. Yeah. There's a lot of advantages that you can achieve from using electric driven equipment right? Because of the precision control that, say, in an electric or diesel-driven world, you don't have quite the precision accuracy that you do from an electric standpoint because we can very precisely control the amount of torque and speed applied to a particular machine. We can also, through the variety of the architecture on the power system side, help mitigate harmonics back to the power source. So if a customer is connecting to the grid, there are certain requirements that, a, you know, let's say it's a grid application where ERCOT's involved or maybe a particular producer and they're saying, hey, we've got to be IEEE 519 compliant. Well, then you have to take that into account in your overall system architecture and how you manage that overall grid configuration is very important, right? If you're on a standalone isolated unit, it's not as important. I've had many discussions with operators. They say, well, we own the grid. And we don't care about harmonics. But in fact, that still comes into play because harmonics generate heat back onto the the lines. And so in discussion with one customer, they actually run in an old SER rig for a test stand application where they were testing some tools. They actually melted the power lines, (laughs) right? Because it didn't take... Because they didn't care about harmonics, right? They didn't care about the harmonics. But in their particular case they were tied to a utility who did care about it, right? So (laughs) all these things have to come into play. So we always go to the very source of where power is coming from and start asking questions. What's important? What's requirements? And try to understand the entire landscape and then work all the way down to the motor, right? And so then what's connected to the motor and what's the requirements from that particular machine, whether it's a pump or whether it's some kind of other application that has different demands, a draw works, a winch, whatever it might be, trying to make sure that we understand the whole process from how we receive power, how we convert it, how we deliver it to a motor to turn. And then there's also the overlay of controls, data acquisition. If somebody wants to do predictive analytics, you know, understanding what they're looking to get out of this system. And so with the electrically driven equipment, and the precision control of technology that's deployed today, there's a lot of data that comes out of, say, is out of the drives, right? I mean, we can get a ton of data and turn it over, and then now somebody has to take that data and mine it. And there could be certain, you know, predictors or indicators out of the data that we get. You know, like as an example, we can look at torque pulses, 
and we can make a lot of assumptions and predictions based on torque pulses that we see coming from the machine, right, as a reflection back to it. This is something that recently came to my attention is that, you know, with the electrification of the oil field, both onshore, offshore, wherever it's at, and trying to replace hydraulics offshore and whatnot, that that's really the key to the next level is having all this stuff electrified so that you can get that data so that you can set it up into some AI machine learning type process. So there can be, you know, I guess the end game is autonomous operations, right? That is correct. Yeah, you very much... I think that's the direction that a lot of the industry wants to go. We're a ways away from that, but we're rapidly approaching it, right? And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, as an example, if you have a series of high-pressure pumps working in unison on a frac application, there's data that can be collected and controls can be modified, you know, live to say, as an example, you can improve the laminar flow of the fluid going down hole right, which reduces the wear on the mm-hmm. iron, which is a huge cost savings to the operator. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges then, like you see today? I imagine supply chain stuff is always a challenge these days, right? We see some of that, but... Yeah, very much so. I mean, supply chain is a huge challenge today. I mean, I think that's across the board. I mean, obviously the labor market is tightening up, which is presenting its own challenges inflation is a challenge right but as you work with customers really trying to to find that sweet spot of their expectation their desires of what they're wanting to get from an application and trying to find that commercial balance and then the other big challenge is is the time because of supply chain challenges and the amount of time that maybe needs to go into from an engineering perspective to develop the drawings necessary to produce a particular solution, get it built, get it tested, get it deployed, and have successful deployments is a challenge. I mean, once the company makes a decision, the expectation is they want to expedite it and they want it as quick as they can get it. And sometimes that's very difficult to achieve. Okay, so loaded question here. If I'm an OFS guy and I'm like, hey, let's go with your system, what's that timeline look like in today's world? Yeah, that's a real good question. and <laughs> I'm good at those. Yeah, here lately, I guess I've been the bearer of bad news being, you know, pre-COVID, seven to nine months was a reasonable target for right. us to deliver stuff. Now it's stretching really more towards the 12, 16, 18 month. Wow. There's a lot of variability in the supply chain. Some things are better than others. Things that were once really considered to be the long pole in the tent have improved Mm -hmm. and just common things that you wouldn't think would be a problem have become a problem. And the example is, is getting the resin to make terminal blocks as an example has been a huge problem. Why? What's up with the resin supply in the world? Well, it's all (laughs) sitting on a boat somewhere. (laughs) Well, if you think about it, there's a lot of this resin that goes into making batteries, right? There's a huge demand from an EV market, solar market, the wind industry. I mean, everything is effectively ramping up simultaneously. So there's a huge demand. And now it's who's going to carry the biggest stick to win over on supply chain. Right. Wow. That is a weird consideration you know this is just a supply chain thing it's the weirdest things that throw a wrench into the whole shooting match well right? you know what john was talking about and this is one of the things that he's done brilliantly when it comes to systems is being able to take in multiple different types of power and be able to take that power and step it down and drive a frack electrically but another big 
issue right now is the type of power and the power availability to operate these spreads. Right. That power availability is out there probably honestly beyond that 14 to 16 month mark. Wow. So for these guys that are really interested in, in coming aboard and adapting to electric frack, you better get on it right now because it's 16 to probably 24 months before you can actually have a fully integrated system, including power generation availability. Wow. And that was one of the things that we talked about earlier. I think you must hit on this a lot is that it's not necessarily all this or all that, right? It can be a combination of different powers coming into the system. Does, does that affect your work at all? Like if it's power grid, but supplemented by some local, you know, gas recips or something. I mean, all that goes into play, right? Yeah, that very much comes into consideration, right? And so you have to understand what the customer's long-term projections are. If they're always going to stay with a particular power source or power configuration, that's an easy one direction to go. If what we're seeing is customers want flexibility, because they don't know what the power source is going to be, who the power provider is going to be. They don't really know what the future holds as far as power generation goes. So they want the ability to adapt, right? So we try to take that into consideration in our designs. So when we onboard power to our power distribution solution, we try to incorporate the flexibility, whether it's, you know, multiple gas recips, you know, one large gas turbine, multiple gas turbines, a utility connection gas turbine or utility, a few gas recips, or now coming into the picture is energy storage, right? So people right, are wanting yeah. to incorporate energy storage. There's, you know, been challenges with fuel supply consistency and reliability. So if the power goes out, you know, if they're in mid-stage or in mid-operation on a drilling application, they need to be able to maintain some level of safety shutdown to minimize any kind of commercial impact, whether it be from sanding out a well or dropping a block or something of that nature, right? So there's a lot of things that come into play in trying to, you know, understand what the customer wants to achieve, really not just today, but what's the expectation because 10, 15 years down the road, you know, from our point of view, this equipment is still going to be in service. Right? Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's one of the big advantages of electrification is the longevity of the asset is much greater than the conventional driven units, right? So right. when you get into it, if we talk specifically about the electric frack side of things, the drive and motor combination has the projection to last 20, 25 years if well-maintained and taken care of. And the only thing that has to be you know, rotated and managed from a maintenance perspective is the pump, right? right? So you see that in the drilling world, the VFD house is very consistent. That can last for decades. What changes the most is going to be the power generation and the rotating machines associated with mm -hmm. it. Right. So if operators are looking at this more and more, we know they are. I mean, there's big uptake in that. So are you seeing... The operators, I mean, do they have guys now who are specialized in the electrical side of things? Because that's not really hasn't been in the oil and gas wheelhouse, right? And now it's becoming an important part. So when you're talking to a guy, does he know something about electricity or is he relying on your expertise? It's a combination of both. We deal with customers that very much are very well experienced and educated in what they're looking for, what they want out of a supplier or a solution. Then we work with customers that or I'll say somewhat novice in regards. They understand from an operational perspective of what they want to get, but how to achieve it from an electrical perspective is a bit new to them. 
We are seeing more and more companies from operators and service organizations hiring more electrical experience, pulling from different resources, industrial base, you know, working with one operator specifically. They relied on their downstream operations and pulled engineering talent from the plants to bring them out to location and said, okay, help us understand how this system works and make sure that we're covering all the safety basics and that everything we're about to turn on and energize is safe, it's functional. Everybody's in agreement on how it's going to work and what the shutdowns and the lockout, tagout procedures are going to be because with multiple mobile equipment, there's a variety of different capabilities of lockout, tagout, shutdowns that you have to take into consideration. There's the operational machinery piece of it. There's the power gen side of things. Mm-hmm. There's distribution. So there could be potentially tens of 20s of ways to lock out equipment, but it's trying to figure out what is it that the customer is really wanting to do. Are they wanting to isolate one piece of equipment or do they want to isolate the whole field? Right. Yeah. Interesting. So they're pulling in resources that they may have in downstream or midstream activities, pulling them in further upstream to understand that piece of it. But there are a lot of customers that we deal with that already have that expertise and they work through that and they provide the guidance. Here's their expectations. And we work to comply with those requirements. And of course, there are certain, you know, standards that are expected to be deployed in the system. And so we do those as a minimum. And then anything above and beyond that, we just have to work with the customers on an individual basis. Yeah, because sometimes the customers will have standards that are above and beyond what regulations call for, right? That is correct, yep. Yeah, interesting. So, John, where do you see the future of all this going? I mean, you're very close to it. You're talking with clients. You've seen the changes over time. Put on your futurist cap and tell us where we're going to be in, I don't know, five years. Yeah, there's going to be more and more equipment that's electrically driven. Right now, we're seeing pretty high volume of requests to convert more and more equipment that's conventionally driven by some sort of diesel hydraulic solution to make it electric. There's going to be more of that. You're going to see conversion of other opportunities that maybe are operated from a gas valve, as an example, that's going to be converted to electric. The big challenge that I see in five years, maybe sooner than that is, It's the same question that when we started the whole discussions about electric frack, where's the power going to come from? Mm -hmm. You know, if you listen to some of the news today and you hear about from the power generation side, we're taking off a couple of nuclear reactors out of service over the next few years. There's this conversion from, you know, implementation to more renewable energy, whether it be wind and solar, but that's only going to be a percentage the wind and solar is not going to make up the amount of megawatts worth of power that a nuclear plant can provide. So we're taking a nuclear plant offline that's providing the country with a certain amount of power in a certain region, but what are we replacing it with? Right. So, you know, the whole idea that, hey, we're going to get away from hydrocarbons and petrochem, it's going to be a real difficult challenge. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because, the petrochem industry and hydrocarbons and fossil fuels that we very much rely on today from, you know, packaging of our food to right. clothing to roofs to, you know, our cars we drive every day, shoes we wear, you know, what are we going to replace that with? And I don't think the solution is around the corner, but 
not saying it can't be found. It's going to be a big challenge, but I think as we convert more equipment and more applications, I know that there's also been, you know, some of these compressor stations, boost stations that are being looked at to go from, you know, maybe naturally gas-driven solutions to electric. The power's got to come from somewhere. Right. And so we got to have power generation and that's going to be a big demand and right now the lead time for power generation equipment is probably as long or longer than the electrical side of the equipment. Wow. Well, with that being said, it's been a minute since we talked about power. And I was visiting with our friends over at RPS and Doc over there, and they're working on mobile coal plants to go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but with $7 gas, you know, natural gas prices, maybe that's an option in the near future, right? Well, I did see this thing. There's no joke. I read this about this the other day. <laughs> I read about this the other day that I forget what company it is. It's a, it's a Japanese company. They're working on miniature nuclear reactors, you know? Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> Which would, I mean, just think if you could do that, if you could just yeah. have a mini nuclear reactor out and powering your little grid out in the field somewhere. But so tell me, like, is the gas, is the associated gas from operations like for the upstream, is that enough to generate enough power to get things done in the field or... Is that just not enough? Well, the answer, I believe, is it depends, right? I mean, <laughs> there's several, that was coming. There's several fields that can produce enough gas that they would historically flare off that they could capture and use that to generate electricity to power whatever you know process they were, whether it's running their ESP pumps or frack you know, equipment right. or drilling or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. So in some cases, it is enough. In some cases, it's more than they need but there are certain scenarios where it doesn't produce enough gas that it can't meet the full demand of whatever equipment they're trying to run so it's not an easy solution right it's supplemental for sure right right? and so i think that a lot of customers are looking for ways to utilize gas that they would historically flare to be you know environmentally friendly instead of wasting it into heat and admitting the gases out into the environment, trying to pull that in and use it to generate electricity, use it in some efficient manner that is eco-friendly and provide some other benefits. Yeah, that's where John's group really brings a lot of value because they're able to try to predict and have a universal or, as you said earlier, autonomous solution, holistic solution, homogenous solution. These are all words I learned from John out in the field, by the way, (laughs) when he was trying to educate me and bring me up to speed out here talking to people when I was in my Chris Farley role. But with all that being said, man, I want to put you on a spot real quick because I think I did this last time with Lifecycle and this might be a theme for the next few podcasts (laughs) as we start to wrap up. But so what's the perfect electric frack spread look like and why? Well, again, (laughs) it depends. (laughs) There's, again, different philosophies, right? You know, when you and I kind of started, we went down a path of taking advantage of a new pump size while it was considered conventional pump. It hadn't been proven. There wasn't Mm -hmm. one that had been sold. It hadn't been field tested. And so, you know, but by the economics, we found that dollar per horsepower, it made a lot of sense from an economic perspective. Now, you know, I still believe very much in that philosophy that the dollar per horsepower is what makes the electric frack, as an example, achievable. Mm-hmm. When we go to the lower horsepowers, it becomes a bit more challenging because the dollar per horsepower starts 
you know, the scale starts separating. And But same time, if you look at the installed base of what the industry has to offer and what they're using in a conventional method, you know, they're very much comfortable. Their supply chain is set up to support these mm-hmm. 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 horsepower pumps. So it's an easier transition. And that was kind of one of the philosophies that we took several years ago was the thought being that converting a conventionally driven pump to electric from diesel driven would be an easier transition from a learning curve than trying to go to an all new pump technology. Right. Mm -hmm. And we've been through those cycles with new pump technologies and certainly have, and there's more yet to come, I'm sure. So it's a bit of a challenge to try to do that. What's perfect, I think is all in the eye of the beholder, as they say, right? Because some customers like the smaller footprint, smaller, lighter weight units that they could run around with, uh, get to certain regions. If you're out in West Texas, as an example, probably bigger is better. It's fewer loads to move. You know, permitting is not as difficult as it is trying to get to, you know, North Dakota or Colorado or West Virginia or something of that nature. So it really depends. There's a place in the market for a variety of different sizes and configuration. You know, there's different philosophical approaches, whether you want to go from a medium voltage solution to a low voltage solution. You know, Jim, we were talking earlier, right? Yeah. Very early days, I very much thought, well, from an adoption perspective, being low voltage might be easier from the pool of talent that you have out there from the drilling rig side, Mm -hmm. getting those rig electricians to jump over into the frack space might be an easier transition from the standpoint they would be working with a known voltage, a lot of the same hardware that'd be very familiar to them. So the learning curve would be minimized, right? Going to a medium voltage solution, it's different. The topologies are different. There's variation in that. And so, you know, the level of safety needs to go up and experience and knowledge needs to go up. Low voltage, you know, it's a little easier to work with, especially if you already have some background coming from the drilling side, right? But what we are seeing, especially when you talk about high horsepower, medium voltage has an advantage. If you're going to go with the lower horsepower ranges, you know, maybe low voltage wins out in that regard, right? So then it just kind of comes down to what the preference is, what, say, the operator's preference might be. And so, you know, there's systems out there that are operating from 600 volts, you know, up to 6.9 kV. So (laughs) that's a big spread. Well, hey, John, thank you so much for stopping by today and talking with Shane and I. Shane, you got anything else? No, man, I just want to say I appreciate you being on the podcast. And it's been a privilege and an honor to be out there in the trenches trying to grow this space. And I'm looking forward to, to seeing what else is in front of us. I am as well. I appreciate the time, guys. Appreciate you. Yep. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's guest. If you have any questions related to today's episode, please email us at oetpodcast at worldoil.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Joliet Electric Motor that's been providing engineered custom motor solutions for the oil field for over 30 years. If you have any questions related to your motor needs, please email me at shaneh at joliettelectricmotors.com.